This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. I'm John Dickerson. This week on Face the Nation, a record number of new coronavirus cases explodes in the U.S., over 45,000 in a single day, marking the biggest jump since the pandemic started. While governors in multiple states hit pause on reopening and the White House downplays the dangerous spread. For the first time in two months, the coronavirus task force reappeared on Friday as the virus spiked in the South and West. The nation's top disease expert was somber. We are facing a serious problem in certain areas. The vice president was more optimistic. We have made a truly remarkable progress. Our guest this morning, Vice President Pence, in an exclusive interview before he visits three states struggling to rein in the virus, Texas, Arizona, and Florida. Did the reopening happen too early? I know there's a temptation to associate uh, the new cases in the Sun Belt with reopening. We'll ask him about the president's confusing messages on testing. I don't kid. Let me just tell you. Let me make it clear. Sometimes I jokingly say or sarcastically say, if we didn't do tests, We'd look great. Then we'll turn to Washington State Governor Jay Inslee, where cases are on the rise. To help us understand all of it, former head of the FDA, Scott Gottlieb. And after weeks of protests and demands for change, Congress tries to act. The bill is passed. We'll get reaction from South Carolina Senator Tim Scott and president of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, Sherilyn Eiffel. It's all ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. Margaret Brennan is off. We begin today with the coronavirus that is continuing to cause more uncertainty in the U.S. New cases are increasing in 29 states. 17 report record seven-day averages. In response, governors in 15 states have paused or reversed plans to reopen. To date, the virus has killed over 125,000 people across the country, and there are more than 2.5 million confirmed cases in the U.S. Our coverage begins this morning with Mark Strassman reporting from Atlanta. COVID has exploded. America reopened and relaxed, and by stealth, the virus resurged. New infection records now stamp a red alert on summer weeks ahead. In Florida, last call for alcohol was at noon Friday. All bars abruptly ordered closed. The state smashed its COVID record, more than 9,500 infections in a single day. On Friday, Miami announced it's closing the beaches before the busy July 4th weekend. There was widespread noncompliance, and that led to, led to issues. Texas, another hotspot state that reopened early. It also closed its bars after record new cases. Positivity rates also demanded it. Testing shows more than one in 10 Texans has been infected. If I could go back and redo anything, it probably would have been to slow down the opening of bars. Harris County, the Houston area, considers its COVID threat severe. 
Its health alert advised residents to stay home because hospitals are approaching capacity. It begs for aggressive and sustained action. Arizona acted. Its governor also told people to stay home and wear face masks. Getting people to wear masks literally has been a fight. This tea shop in Washington state throws out customers who wear one. In Kansas City, mandatory face masks goes into effect tomorrow. It joins 17 states and the District of Columbia with mask requirements. But every state at least recommends wearing one indoors. It's another sign no one knows where this virus will erupt next. This is the Atlanta headquarters of the CDC. This week, the agency reported that the number of COVID cases has been dramatically undercounted. For every American with a confirmed case, 10 more have had it. That means at least 20 million Americans have had the virus, John, and everyone else remains vulnerable. Mark Strassman, thank you. We turn now to our conversation with Vice President Mike Pence, the head of the White House Coronavirus Task Force. We spoke with him Saturday about the spike in new cases. Mr. Vice President, some of the states that are having the biggest spikes are the big ones, Texas, California, Arizona. Are you concerned? Well, we're monitoring very closely um, new cases in Florida, Texas, Arizona, and California. In fact, uh, I'll be traveling with members of our team to several of those states over the next several days to make sure and get a ground report. But what the American people should know is that because of the leadership that President Trump has provided, because of uh, the extraordinary innovation that we have brought to this task, we are uh, we're in a much better place uh, to respond to these outbreaks than we were four months ago. I mean, today we are now testing 500,000 Americans a day. We're able to do a great deal more surveillance and community testing than ever before. Uh, we've also uh, expanded um, uh, our, our health care capacity across the country, literally seeing delivered billions in personal protective equipment, ventilators, and most importantly in this moment is we've seen the development and distribution of therapeutics that have literally been saving lives around the country, and we believe by the end of this year it's likely we'll have a vaccine. So you, you say that the country's in a better place in this moment. but but. The experts say we shouldn't be in this moment we're in. And I'll read you a few. Dr. Anthony Fauci says there's a disturbing surge of infections. The governor of Texas, Governor Abbott, says there is a massive outbreak. In the Wall Street Journal 10 days ago, you said 20,000 cases was a good number relative to where they've been. This week, there have been 40,000 cases. Your level of concern, I understand you're saying what's been done, seems insufficient to the alarm from governors and experts. No, we're, let me be very clear that uh, we are focused, our entire team is focused on working with governors to make sure that we meet this moment and support the efforts at state levels uh, to, uh, to provide the kind of steps that will, uh, will mitigate uh, these new cases. But there's another way, John, that this is different from early on, and that is that uh, one of the things that we've heard uh, in Texas and Florida in particular uh, is that uh, nearly half of those who are testing positive are Americans under the age of 35. That's contributing to the fact that, that those that are requiring to be hospitalized who are testing positive for coronavirus is significantly lower than it was two months ago. And so we, we really believe that, that uh, what, what is happening here is a combination of increased testing. Uh, we're able to test a great deal more Americans than we were able to several months ago. But it also may be indication that as we're opening our economy up, that, that younger Americans have, uh, have been congregating uh, in ways that uh, may have disregarded the guidance that we gave on the federal level for all the phases of reopening. And I think that's why you see several governors taking action to, uh, to, uh, to, 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 to essentially try and, and, and prevent further increases in those new cases. The spike states are also states that are reopening early. And the administration's focused a lot on the economy, trying to get it reopened. Right. The, the, the states that are reopening are having some of the biggest problems. Did the reopening happen too early? 
Well, all 50 states are uh, opening up again to one degree or another. And um, I know there's a temptation to associate uh, the new cases in the Sun Belt with reopening, but it's important to remember that, that states like Florida and like Texas actually began to open up in, in early May. For the better part of six weeks, John, we did not see any significant movement. In my conversations with governors in Florida and in Texas and in Arizona in particular, we're monitoring very closely their hospitalization rate, and we continue to be very confident that they have the supplies and the support and the capacity to, to give people the render of the level of care that any of us would want a family member to have. You're talking about being able to monitor the situation. The argument is that the situation shouldn't be existing in the first place. Europe waited longer to reopen, and they have seen less trouble in reopening. In Florida, since Memorial Day, which was a new stage of reopening, cases are up 165 percent. There were almost 10,000 cases in a single day in Florida. Something happened. And it's not just a question of monitoring. The, the experts are saying these states walked into a problem with their eyes wide open because they opened too early. And that's a mistake which seems to repeat the original mistake, which was to downplay and not take seriously the nature of the threat? Well, I, I, I beg to differ about the reopening, and I beg to differ about downplaying. On, on the second point, I mean, President Trump suspended all travel from China before the first case of community transition, transmission occurred in the United States. There were nine cases when he did We that. stood up—well, no, not—, not there were, there were cases in the United States of people who had returned to this country, but the first case of community transmission would occur weeks later. And he stood up the White House Coronavirus Task Force. And everything I've described about, about an unprecedented uh, scaling of testing, the development of billions of, of medical supplies, ventilators, the development of therapeutic medicines like remdesivir, uh, and others that are being developed, the, the launch in record time of a vaccine development. But as we've arrived at this moment, uh, it's clear across the Sun Belt that there's something happening, particularly among younger Americans. And that's why we fully support uh, Governor Abbott's decision uh, to close bars and limit restaurants. We fully support steps never taken in Florida and elsewhere. And um, We'll continue to support those efforts. Why not ask people to wear masks? Well, we believe people should wear masks wherever Why the president social say that? distancing is not possible, wherever it's indicated by either state or local authorities. And uh, you know, the uh, w the president has worn a mask. Uh, I wore a mask on several occasions this week. Governor Abbott in Texas has said the precondition for opening the economy is wearing a mask. Wear the mask, he said will keep the economy open. You and the president care a lot about keeping the economy open. The message on masks has been muddled. Why doesn't the president, who has some suasion in the country, come forward and say everybody should wear a mask, which is what all the governors are saying? Why has he been kind of muddling that message? Well, first, we, we believe that every state has a unique situation. And I want to be clear. Well, while we're monitoring... Um, about 16 states that are seeing outbreaks. Um, it represents about 4 percent of all the counties in this country. 34 states are not seeing a rise in positivity, and they have different measures, different requirements, and different guidance in place. I mean, one, one of the one of the one of the elements of the genius of America is the principle of federalism, of state and local control. We've made it clear that we want to defer to governors, we want to defer to local officials, but Mr. Vice and President, people should listen to them. The virus doesn't know federalism. A virus that hits in Texas is in New York tomorrow. This is a problem that requires a coordinated national result, which is what these outbreaks are showing. And so to say states should deal with them individually, seems to miss the big fact, which is the virus can go wherever it wants. John, if we'd have taken that approach, we'd have never had the success that we had in the greater New York City area. We'd have never had the success in Michigan or New Orleans, because from early on, we worked closely in partnership with governors to make sure that they had what they needed, when they needed it, tailored to the unique circumstances in their states. 
And, and when you look at the extraordinary progress that we made in New York and in Connecticut and in New Jersey and New Orleans and in Michigan and in early on in states uh, uh, like Washington State, where we, we flattened the curve, we slowed the spread. And we did it at a time early in this uh, pandemic where we were just scaling testing up. You mentioned testing. To get the economy open again, testing mm -hmm. has to happen. The president said if we didn't do testing, we'd have no cases. That's wrong and misleading. Given how important testing is, why is the president saying things that are wrong and misleading about testing? Well, I think it's inarguable that the historic increase in testing uh, that we've accomplished in, in this country has played a role in the new cases, particularly among younger Americans. John, I want to remind your viewers that two months ago in most states in this country, we were not testing people that had no symptoms or were below but a certain Mr. age. But we Mr. were Price. focusing on seniors. We were focusing on those with symptoms. But now, because of the public-private partnership that President Trump initiated, we're literally able to test anyone in the country that would but want a test and come forward. We scaled it with great American innovation. But Mr. Vice President, 125,000 Americans have died. We're six months into this. Testing is crucial to get the economy opening, opened and to, mm -hmm. because of public health. Right. And the President of the United States, with the biggest megaphone on the planet, is saying something about testing that is wrong and misleading. Is that the standard we want for the President of the United States? John, uh, the President was observing the fact that rising cases, which, is, which the media has focused exclusively Why on— Why is that vital to getting has this been, problem solved? —has been, in part, a result of increased testing. What, what the media doesn't focus on at all is because of the sacrifices the American people made in those 45 days to slow the spread and the good common sense measures they continue to do. We've continued to see fatalities decline. I grieve for every American family that lost a loved one, for the more than 125,000 Americans that we've lost in this. We're going to continue to take steps to protect the but, most vulnerable, and testing will be a critical part of that going but forward. But, Mr. It's, testing is critical to protect and to open the economy. In a public health crisis, information mm -hmm. and confidence in that information is crucial, right. as you know so well. So why does the person with the best megaphone say things to undermine confidence in testing? It seems totally at odds with what you're spending all your day doing. This isn't a triviality. This is an important, crucial thing about testing. Well, John, I just, I just disagree that the president's undermining confidence in testing. He observed— Repeatedly. That, —that the volume of new cases is in part a result of, uh, of, of, the, of the rapid scaling of testing that we've done around the country. Shortly after our interview with the vice president, we learned that he canceled upcoming campaign events in Arizona and Florida out of what the Trump campaign calls an abundance of caution. We'll have more from the vice president in our second half hour, and we'll be right back with Washington Governor Jay Inslee. Stay with us. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Yesterday, Governor Jay Inslee put a hold on reopenings in Washington, citing the state's rising coronavirus cases. He joins us this morning from Bainbridge Island. Good morning, Governor. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Tell me, Governor, about the increase in cases. Your state health officials said that in certain counties, the situation is comparable to March in what was happening in King County. What's going on? Well, we have a fire uh, in many places across the United States, including a few of the counties in my state where the situation is so dire that people are gasping for breath and having to be transported by ambulance over a mountain range at over 100 miles uh, to be treated. And so uh, I, I, when, I've, when I've heard the 
vice president talk about how things are just hunky dory. It's just, it's just, it's just maddening. Uh, the situation is critical in many places across the United States, and all the happy talk and wishful thinking in the world is not going to wash that away. Well, so we are taking very strong measures to get people to mask up. We know that's the solution from a health standpoint and the way to reopen our economy. So is that why you're seeing the increase in cases? You think it's because people aren't wearing masks? In some places, not as much as they should. That's why we put an order in effect, including businesses' obligation in this regard. And we sure could use some leadership uh, from the president. It, it is so difficult from day one. He has uh, downplayed and distorted and, and disabled our ability to fight this war because information is like the aircraft carriers of World War II. It's how we fight this virus. So right now, we are in an urgent national mission, or should be, to, to mask up. And the fact is, is that uh, uh, Donald Trump is for masking up, like George Wallace was for integration. And we governors are urging people now to use this effective technique. 100% masking means 100% opening up. And all of us should be on that bandwagon right now. On this masking question, it's not just the president, though, who's been uh, lukewarm about it. You've had resistance from your own sheriffs, from within your own state. You know, the vice president talks about federalism. Isn't it much more likely that a message about masking is going to be listened to if it comes from within the community, from you or from a mayor, than if it comes from a president on the other side of the country? So this is about more than just the president's muddled message. People just don't want to wear masks. Well, actually, if they get a message from the president, it's amazing that they do. We have increased mask usage in Yakima County from 35 to 60 percent. It continues to grow. But here's the situation we've had to deal with. Uh, to some degree, Republican and Democrat governors alike. The mo We had sort of a bipartisan consensus here. People were pulling together. The moment Donald Trump tweeted that he wanted to liberate Michigan from the health messages of Governor Whitmer. The moment he did that, all of a sudden people wearing MAGA hats decided they didn't want to help out as much. And that has been very, very damaging. We need a president who will be fully committed to a message of health. You know, and, and instead of tweeting the other day about the importance of masks, he tweeted about monuments. Now, we need a president who will care more about living Americans and less about dead Confederates. This has an enormous impact. And if we can get everybody wearing a MAGA hat to wear a mask, we're going to tame this virus because this masking is very, very effective. And I, I do want to reiterate, this is the way to open our economy. If that's all people cared about, if we get people to mask up and we can reopen our economy, that'll be a good day for everybody. Tell me about the agricultural sector, Governor. That seems to be one of the areas where you're seeing an increase in cases those are essential workers. This isn't about going to a bar. This is about feeding the country. Why is that a particular problem? And wasn't that problem foreseeable? Well, look, at we, we, we've got to have an agricultural industry because we need to eat across the United States. So we have asked people to step in and, and continue to work in these industries, and they have done that. And we have learned we've had more successful protocols to reduce the rate of transmission. You can understand why these are uh, higher levels of transmission where people are working close, uh, closely together. But we've put into place some really good protocols. Although we need to continue to increase testing in these facilities. And that's why uh, from day one, when the president said that this was just going to go away Monday and that we had adequate testing, that also disabled some of our efforts. But right now, it is not just the agricultural industry. And I think that's important to say. We have very widespread community transmission in some of our counties. Mm -hmm. And this points to the fact that all of us need to pull on this rope. And we can use some national leadership in that regard. This week, you put uh, uh, some guidance out that um, for reopening college instruction. Um, given the spikes you've seen, uh, do you still think colleges are going to be able to open in your state? I think there is a likelihood of that because we've developed very uh, sensible plans to open up in a way that's smart. That means you maximize your facility for social distancing. It means everybody wears a mask, which has been shown to be effective. It means that sometimes we have cohorts, so small groups of people stay together and don't mix with, with larger groups. And we have 
adequate testing to be able to reduce any, any transmission. So I think that there is a reasonable probability that we will have very broad scale on campus uh, activity this year. But again, this virus is a wily beast. And the one thing we have to fight it right now is good information and good inspiration. All right. Look, I, I don't... I don't Governor. know why the president has been against testing on this. All right. I'm sorry, Governor. We're going to have to end our information there. We got to go to a break. Thank you so much for being with us. Be safe. Mask up. And we'll be right back. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. We have a new CBS News poll out this morning. Americans' assessment of the coronavirus response is worsening. 62% think it's going badly, and that's up five points from last month. 59% say President Trump is doing a bad job responding. That is an all-time high. To see more, log on to our website at cbsnews.com. Some of our stations are leaving us now, but we'll be right back with more Face the Nation. Stay with us. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome back to Face the Nation. We want to go now to someone who has become a weekly guest on this broadcast, Former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb. He's in Westport, Connecticut. Good morning. Good morning. Dr. Gottlieb, I want to start with just your basic assessment. What is happening right now with this pandemic? Well, these are major epidemics that are underway in the South and the Southeast right now. Um, You look at uh, Texas with almost 6,000 cases, California almost 6,000 cases, Georgia's getting hot with 2,000 cases. Florida with almost 10,000 cases right now, and Texas with about 5,500 people hospitalized. This is community spread that's been underway for some time. It's going to be hard to extinguish. We're going to have many weeks ahead of us of continued growth in these cases, at least two or three weeks, even if we take aggressive actions right now, which across the board we're not doing. And I know a lot of the discussion right now is that these cases are clustered in younger people, so deaths are actually coming down. But that's not likely to stay that way. Um, This spread is likely to seep into more vulnerable communities, and we're likely to see total daily deaths start to go back up again. So your point is this can't be changed or turned off with a switch that while we're, we're seeing big numbers, we should expect them for a while and more bad news. Well, look at New York. New York implemented the stay at home order on March 20th. It was a Friday. It went into effect on Sunday. They peaked in terms of the number of daily cases that they were reporting on April 7th. So almost three weeks after they implemented a stay-at-home order, the cases continued to build, and then they started to slowly decline. Um, We're implementing measures in these states. The governors have taken action, but the action is much weaker than a stay-at-home order. And so even if it does have some impact on the continued spread, it's going to be a marginal impact, and it's going to take more time to flow through. So I think that these states have some difficult weeks ahead. And you look at states like Florida, which might be in the worst shape right now, it looks like they may be tipping over into exponential growth. And so they're going to see perhaps rapid acceleration in the number of cases. So it's a difficult situation right now. I think over the next week we're going to know just how pervasive the spread is, but it looks pretty widespread right now. In your judgment, was the rush to reopen too fast? 
Well, I think two things happened. One, we reopened against the backdrop of a lot of spread. And so it was only going to go in one direction. There was already a lot of infection around to continue building new cases. And, and these epidemics take time to build. And the other thing was the speed of the opening in some of these states. They didn't really pause in between steps of their reopening for a sufficient amount of time to see if it was having an untoward effect. And so as they reopened parts of their economies, they should have taken two-week pauses in between. That's what states like Maryland, Massachusetts, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Michigan did, and did it successfully so that they could measure the impact of their actions. What do you make, Dr. Gottlieb, about the European Union's choice or decision not to uh, allow U.S. travelers because the outbreak has not been sufficiently contained in America? Well, look, I think there was some inevitability to that. We still have a lot of spread across this country. If you think that we're only diagnosing one in five to one in 10 cases, the CDC said about one in 10 cases are being diagnosed. I think it's probably a little bit better than that. But you look at the 40,000 infections that we have, and it really probably represents a quarter of a million infections on a daily basis. That's a lot of infection around the United States. And so for countries that really crushed their epidemics, I think there was an inevitability that they were going to limit travel from U.S. travelers into those countries. I think the other thing that we're going to see probably start to materialize on a wider scale are restrictions within the United States. I think states that have crushed their epidemic are going to start to put up more stringent restrictions on travel. You already saw the beginning of that with New Jersey, Connecticut, and New York coming together. But there's a lot more that states can do, including screenings at airports for passengers flowing through certain parts of the country um, that might limit travel um, within the United States. You mentioned that you don't think closing bars and some of the limited pause measures that some of these states that have reopened have put in place now that we're seeing these spikes. What would be effective that could be implemented? Well, the easiest thing we could do is universal masking, and I don't understand why we can't mandate it in states that have major epidemics underway, and there's a number that do right now. We mandate that people have to wear seatbelts in cars, but we're not saying that they have to wear a mask in the setting of an epidemic. If a large percentage of the population, not everyone, but a large percentage of the population wore masks on a regular basis, reasonable quality masks, that alone could reverse the epidemic, could get the, the transfer rate, the R, if you will, below 1%. Um, so it's the simplest intervention that we can take that could have an impact on the spread right now. In terms of getting people to wear masks, what have we learned or not learned about the, the way in which we all do or don't collectively take action to do the things that are necessary to slow the spread and, and beat back this thing? Well, look, we have a hard six months ahead of us. We're going to get through this. This is a brief moment in our long history. Um, we need to focus on preserving life, and we need to focus on maintaining the things that are most important to us, keeping our businesses open, sending our children back to school in the fall, preserving the health care system, protecting the vulnerable. And so we all collectively need to come together to do what we can to limit spread. And that means reducing some of our daily interactions, wearing masks, being more vigilant, after about six, seven months, we're going to get to a therapeutic or a vaccine that's going to help us more fully vanquish this COVID threat. But it's really an early 2021 event. So we need to just get through 2020. I think we need to come together and think about what we can do as a nation to reduce our collective risk and not make this so, so cantankerous. The idea of universal masking, wearing a mask when you go out. There's a lot of things we do that are inconveniences, but we do it to protect ourselves and protect our fellow citizens. All right, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, thanks again for being with us. And we'll be right back. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. As nationwide calls for racial justice and police reform continued this week, legislation in Washington reached a stalemate. A Republican-backed police reform bill was blocked by Senate Democrats. And while House Democrats did pass a bill, the legislation is likely dead on arrival in the Senate. We want to return now to our conversation with Vice President Pence. What do you hear the protesters saying when they protest? Well... It's, it's been a focus of ours uh, since the tragic killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis. Um, there's no excuse for what happened to George Floyd. Uh, 
but there's also no excuse for the rioting and looting and violence uh, that ensued. Um, look, the president engaged law enforcement leaders. We've sat down with leaders in the African-American community. I've, I've met with leaders in the African-American community and, and law enforcement in cities around this country. And what I hear is while, while uh, the radical left says we need to defund the police, what the American people want is for us to fund the police with additional training and support and also improve the lives of the people in our African-American community, which I'm proud to say, under President Trump's leadership, we were doing over the last three years. We don't need to choose between <clears throat> supporting law enforcement and supporting our African-American neighbors. One, we can do both, and that's how we bring our country together. One thing protesters would like to hear is leaders say black lives matter. You won't say that. Why? All my life, I've been inspired by the example of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Um, when I was in Congress, I traveled to his home church in Montgomery with Congressman John Lewis. I walked across the Edmund Pettus Bridge on the anniversary of Bloody Sunday. Um, I cherish the progress that we have made toward a more perfect union for African Americans throughout our history. And I've, I've aspired throughout my career to be a part of that ongoing work. It's really a hard issue for me. And as a pro-life American, I also believe that all life matters, born and unborn. But what, what I see in the leaders of the Black Lives Matter movement is a political agenda of the radical left that would defund the police, that would leave uh, that out of it. Just tear the down phrase. monuments, that would that would press a a, a radical left agenda that uh, and 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 support calls for the kind of violence that has beset the very communities that they say that they're advocating for. But, the, but I mean, sir, we I, I've I've literally met I've literally met with African American leaders. Uh, around this country and in, in the national capital area who've, who made it clear to us they, they want law and order, uh, they, they want peace in our streets. So you won't say Black Lives Matter? John, I really believe that all lives matter. Okay. And that's where the heart of the American people lies. And now we turn to the senator who drafted the Senate bill on police reform, South Carolina Republican Senator Tim Scott. Good morning. Good to see you, Senator. Good morning, John. I hope you're doing well. We're uh, doing all right. I want to ask you about this yes, national sir. moment that's testing all of us, um, protests yes. in the street like we haven't seen since the 1960s. I'd like to ask you what I asked the vice president. What do you hear in the voices of those protesters? Well, I hear from I me mean, from the nonviolent protesters. What we hear consistently is this frustration that was ignited by eight minutes and forty-six seconds of George Floyd pleading for his life, saying he could not breathe, and then at the end asking for his mother. Uh, what I hear is a concern and a frustration that I have felt as a person who's been stopped by law enforcement eighteen times in the last couple of decades, including this year. What what I hear in the protesters is enough already. Let's get to the table and get something done. And what I hear from the protesters is this is our country. We want our voices to be heard in this country. And what I did because I heard and have felt the frustration of the protesters myself as I drafted legislation that said we see you, we hear you, and let's move together forward. Uh, this is a very interesting and important moment. Interesting in that the country's response, John, has been amazing. Uh, white folks and black folks, brown ones and yellow ones, have come together in the streets of our cities to say we want to be a unified country. I say thank you and God bless them. In the moment of unity, Senator, I don't want to ask you this next question, but I must. The president of the United States promoted to his 82 million Twitter followers today a video in which somebody screamed white power. I'm going to play that now for those who've not seen it. Senator, that's on the president of the United States Twitter feed to 82 million people. Your reaction? 
Well, he should just take it down. There's, just, there's nothing much to be said that is inappropriate, and it should be taken down. But you were talking about unity. You're, you just made a very compelling uh, case just then Absolutely. about hearing this agony and this cry of protesters and, and coming together for unity. White power is not unity. Well, no, certainly, it absolutely is not. I mean, I, I live in a city where the Civil War started, and I'm so thankful that the people of South Carolina, specifically in Charleston, we've evolved as a people, and that is a great thing. The truth of the matter is when you hear things like that uh, racist chant of, uh, towards white power, we should have the same response with the same uh, type of energy that we have for those folks we've, we know have been disadvantaged for so long. We should stand up and say, that's not right. And I'm saying the exact same right. thing now. That's not right. Let's but that's not the entire conversation, and that's not the entire clip. That was a terrible uh, display that I saw in, in, in that video. I watched the whole video uh, before I came on the show. The whole thing was terrible. Yeah. Let's get to your legislation, because that's your effort to try to get yes, at this moment we're on. Why did the bill break down in the Senate? Well, John, I, I, it's hard for me to tell you exactly why. My, my suspicion is that the presidential politics uh, and choosing a vice president was a part of that conversation. What I offered my friends on the other side was not uh, five amendments based on Senator Schumer's letter to us saying that there were five major issues. I said, let's fix those five. They came into a room and we were going to chat about it. They said, there's 20 things that we'd like to change. I said, I'll give you 20 amendments and I'll start by offering the first amendment myself on chokeholds. Our legislations were about the same except for in the House legislation, they had blood flow as well as airflow. They suggested that my legislation did not include blood flow. I said, I'll add the carotid in there and we'll make that change. We could do so much together for those folks in the streets today. We missed a golden opportunity, not because the bills weren't similar enough, but because what the House wanted mm -hmm was not what the Senate Democrats wanted to have a conversation about. So it seems to me, Senator, there's both a procedural question and then there's a policy question in your disagreement with Democrats. But I want to get at you suggested this is about vice presidential politics. Do you think Democrats are discuss talking to you in good faith uh, as, as you try to revive what might happen in the Senate or is, or is it past that? Well, listen, I am, I'm going to be open to having a conversation this week in a few days with some of the leaders who put together the House bill. I fashioned much of what I saw from what I liked in the House bill. There are things in the House bill that I do think are not in the best interest of the country. L let me just be clear on that fact. While I do talk about the fact that there are a lot of things in common, there are a few things that I believe makes it worse on cities, makes it worse on the most vulnerable populations within those cities. And what we're seeing manifesting in New York City today is a, is a byproduct of those concerns that I have about the House legislation. There's a reason why murder is up 79% over the numbers last year, 64% shooting increase over the numbers last year, just in New York City. When you start demonizing and stereotyping all law enforcement as evil and bad, you start putting targets on their backs, you start seeing them withdraw from some areas, and that creates a powder keg that's not good for the nation. Listen. And so the demonizing of law enforcement is not a part of my bill because I don't want law enforcement to demonize right. African-Americans. We have to be on the same page. So quickly, Senator, on the question, though, of yes, accountability sir. and holding police accountable, to, with this question of qualified immunity, basically the other side is saying they get let off the hook unless they do something that's excessively egregious. Is there any way to fix that or come to common ground on that? I think there's a way for us to do so by doing two things. You have to bifurcate the issue. Number one, law enforcement officers being civilly, uh, not prosecuted, but to get exact money from law enforcement officers as a means of fixing this problem. I don't agree with that at all. Giving the victims' families an opportunity to get more money from cities and counties and states, absolutely. Okay. Senator Scott, we're uh, very grateful you're with us. We've run out of time. Thanks so much. Oh, darn. <laughs> Thank you, John. We'll be back in a moment. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. 
just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Joining us now is Sherilyn Eiffel, the president of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, an organization dedicated to fighting for racial justice. She joins us this morning from Baltimore. Good morning. Good morning, John. I want to start uh, with that video that we just played for Senator Scott. Apparently, the president has now taken it down. But when you're president, you can't delete the things you say. And I wanted to get your reaction about the white power uh, video that he promoted. This is really not about the president uh, taking it down. This is about the judgment of the president in putting it up. Uh, it's about what the president believes. And, um, and it's time for this, this country to really face that. I spent the first few years of this presidency with reporters asking me questions over and over again about whether, in fact, the president was racist and whether he support, supported white supremacist ideologies. I'm through uh, answering that question because the president answers it himself, and he did this morning. In talking to the vice president, I asked him about the phrase Black Lives Matter, and, and he said all lives matter. I wonder in the current context that in this moment of protests like we haven't seen since the 1960s, um, what you think he misses about the, that phrase and what it means in this moment? Uh, I think that we don't have enough time on this program to actually explore all the things the vice president is likely missing. Um, you know, even if the vice president had said Black Lives Matter, it would be hollow, and I wouldn't believe it, uh, because he is the vice president of the United States, just like we have a president, just like we have senators, and they should be judged by their actions and what they do. Uh, and, you know, when I hear the vice president say that for his entire life he has been guided by the words of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., then he would know what Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said about protests in 1965 and 66 that protested police violence in African-American communities when he said riots are the language of the unheard. Uh, so to hear uh, him say that and then at the same time hear his comments about protests uh, demonstrate that the vice president is far from understanding the significance of this moment and really what his obligation is uh, when people across the country in 50 states, not just black people, but people of all races are coming together and standing together and saying enough is enough. So one of the responses to that cry from the streets is the bills that have gone through the House and the Senate. Focusing on the Senate for a moment, we just talked to Senator Scott, uh, whose bill was blocked. Uh, part of what the Democratic senators did was cite your work in, in why that bill should be blocked. Was it uh, irredeemable, that legislation, or is there any common ground here to, to, to get maybe some movement on this issue? You know, much is told by uh, the senator's words that uh, this is a response to the cries from the street in light of the death of George Floyd. That is not where this started. And the problem is that too many people in the United States Congress have only woken up to this issue or decided to do something about this issue uh, in the last six weeks or the last four weeks. Uh, where, where were they in 2014 when people were protesting in Ferguson? Where were they in 2014 when Eric Garner was choked to death on the streets of New York? And that's just, you know, in 2014. Some of us can go back to Eleanor Bumpers and Michael Stewart and Clifford Glover. This is a decades-long struggle. The protests of the 1960s in 64, 65, 66, 67 in cities all over this country, 150 cities, Almost all of those protests, all of those incidents of unrest began with an encounter between law enforcement and African-Americans in African-American communities. So we've had a lot of time to think about what is needed, and what is needed is a regime of accountability. And the problem with the Senate bill uh, is that it is not, it does not propose a regime of accountability. It proposes a regime of data collection and the creation of commissions to study a problem that we already know quite a bit about. So what we need is accountability. And that is completely absent from the Senate bill. The House bill does include a regime of accountability. And I will say I'm not a, I don't represent the Democratic Party. I represent uh, communities of, of color. I represent black people as a civil rights uh, organization, as leader of a civil rights organization. And we didn't get everything we wanted uh, in the House bill either. But the House bill does include a strong regime of accountability. It addresses the issue of qualified immunity, for example, which you were discussing with Senator Scott. It, walk me through qualified immunity, because there are some ways in which qualified immunity is very helpful for federal workers trying to do their jobs. 
It's uh, explain the, the problem in terms of accountability and whether there's is there any middle ground here that can be found? Well, first of all, this bill only would eliminate qualified immunity for law enforcement officers, so it would be limited to that category. Secondly, qualified immunity has been so distorted. The doctrine basically is a defense that allows uh, public workers and police officers in this case to be able to uh, defend themselves against actions they may have taken unless it was clear that those actions uh, violated the law. In other words, there has to be a clearly established law that the uh, actions were unconstitutional. But courts have now taken it to the point where unless the exact fact pattern, so a police officer, uh, you know, tases to death our client uh, in Phoenix City, Alabama, uh, and we can't get the Supreme Court to hear the case because th there has to be an, ex an exact scenario of, of someone being tased to death 19 times that has been found to be unconstitutional in order to establish that qualified immunity is not available. Uh, it is beyond belief the kinds of cases, the kinds of egregious conduct that mm -hmm. we see uh, and the way in which it's been distorted. Conservatives, many conservatives, also understand that qualified immunity has gone too far, including Senator Lindsey Graham, who said he's willing to look at it. So right. we need to deal with that uh, element of accountability. All right, Sherilyn Eiffel, we're going to have to end it there. We've run out of time. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me, John. That's it for us today. Thanks for watching. Margaret will be back next week. For Face the Nation, I'm John Dickerson. Today's guests were Vice President Mike Pence, Washington Governor Jay Inslee, former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb, South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, and President of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, Sherilyn Eiffel. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Shelley Schwartz. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our digital network, CBSN, at 11 a.m., 3 p.m., and 6 p.m. Eastern every Sunday. If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.